you're listening to the one and only Writing Wall podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Hawks, and this podcast is for all of us in the writing community. Every second and fourth Saturday of the month, an indie author, poet, or writer may be featured right here at 6 p.m. From book review segments to introducing listeners to local writers from my very own community right here in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, I'm looking forward to highlighting the indie community everywhere. If you would like to participate, reach out to me on Twitter at The Writing Wall or on Instagram using the handle at writingsonthewall85. Because everyone has a story, I want to hear yours. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to the Writing Wall podcast. This episode contains information that may be triggering and is not suitable for children under the age of 18. Please be advised that information pertaining to sexual assault, abuse, and drug use is part of this episode. If you're the victim of a sexual assault or know someone who is, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. This comes straight from the Chasing Cosby podcast. For nearly half a century, Bill Cosby brought warmth and laughter into the hearts across the country, cementing his image as America's dad. But he also led a dark, secret life preying on women. The comedian carefully coaxed each one into feeling safe and cared for, then left them to pick up the pieces of their lives. It all started with Andrea Constand. She carried the burden of being the only one of the 60-plus accusers whose case could be tried in a court of law. Now she's telling her side of the story, along with firsthand accounts from more than a dozen survivors, jurors, and prosecutors. Then the Los Angeles Times and hosted by investigative reporter Nikki Wisensee Egan, Chasing Cosby is a definitive take of the rise and fall of Bill Cosby. This is one of those podcasts and books that I'm going to highly recommend anyone read that is into true crime or that would like to know more about the Bill Cosby case because truly Nikki Wisensee Egan has done her homework. She's been on this case since 2005. Nikki now joins me here on the Writing Wall podcast this evening to talk about her book, Chasing Cosby, The Downfall of America's Dad. Nikki, thank you so much for being here this evening. Yeah, thank you. It's been quite a journey. (laughs) Can you share with listeners a little about yourself, where you were born, and what got you started in journalism? Sure. I'm originally from northeastern Pennsylvania, but I moved every two or three years growing up because of my dad's job. He was with Sears at the time. He lived in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania. And when I was in eighth grade, we moved to North Carolina. And it was then I was going to be in high school. And our high school had a yearbook, a literary magazine, and a newspaper. My end of my freshman year, a friend of mine was applying and she said, you should apply. So I applied. It was called Scotland Publications and the advisor made me the co-editor of the school newspaper, The Bagpipes, my sophomore year in high school. And then she made me the editor my junior year. And then she made me managing editor of all of the publications my senior year. And by that time, I had been firmly bitten by the journalism bug. So I went to college at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which had a great journalism school, and kept working on the school paper there, majored in journalism, poli-sci, did internships in the summers, moved to D.C. to be in a program called the Washington Center for Politics and Journalism after I graduated, and interned for the Boston Globe, which was an amazing experience. Your book, Chasing Cosby, is about the Bill Cosby, Mr. Huxtable, a.k.a. America's dad. When did you first hear of the accusations against him, and what was your reaction? So I was hired in out of state to service, the food service, and I transferred to Philly. Um, my mom was dying at the time. I wanted to be closer to get home, and so I ended up covering a lot of crime. And my boss would put me on like the big crime stories, but I was really into investigative journalism. So I was also getting my master's in criminal justice from Temple at the time, trying to make sense out of the senseless. And when this story broke, I had spent the last couple of years investigating the Pennsylvania State Police for sexual misconduct. 
they'd had a state trooper who was preying on women while on duty. And by the time he was caught and by the time a lawsuit against him was about to go to trial, there were 30 women accusing him. And that one truly horrified me because I, it wasn't too long ago that I was one of those girls dancing the night away on the you know, dance floor of the Delaware River. And because you can't fight back, you, you don't show any resistance. And by the time you wake up, and even if you decide to go to the hospital, most of these drugs have already left your system. And think about it. So, so you're just a regular person, and this happens to you. And the person who's accusing you is Bill Cosby. Who are the police going to believe? Are they going to believe you, regular girl, without talent, and out that night? Or are they going to believe the same thing as Mary Jazz? I, I just really developed a passion for that particular subject after doing that story, because it was there. But, um, but I never expected to be covering this allegation from King Bill Cosby. A personal hero of mine. And I'd grown up watching Pat Edward and the Cosby Kids on Saturday morning cartoons with my brother. I loved the Cosby show. As I write in the book, it got me through some rough times in my childhood. And of course, there had never been a risk of anything like it about Cosby. It was that he had an affair that came out with the woman who was the mother of the woman he'd been giving the money to. Came out and said he admitted he had an affair with her and the daughter he'd been supporting for years, although it denied that she was his biological daughter. He had her arrested because she dropped out of school, college, so he stopped paying for her, was trying to blackmail him with some guy friends of hers. But that was it. I mean, this broke on the local news in January 2005. Originally they said groping, but groping with former Temple University employees. And my boss thought, and he defined the story, and my initial reaction was not the cause, because, you know, that's what we call them, Billy. I just, I was blown away. But as a journalist, your job is personal feelings aside and just try to focus on the facts. And that's what I did. I just had to shove my personal feelings aside and go, okay, you know, what are the facts here? And know who he is, or who I think he is anyway. But there's, you know, and that's, that's where it all started at the time, and it, which they should not have done, because he was a sexual assault victim. and. That later changed with this case because another reason was so infuriating to cover this in 2005. It's like all the journalistic rules were broken in this case. And I found out she would have been director of operations for the Temple Women's Basketball Team. She was one of the top basketball players in high school in Canada. She was at the University of Arizona. So I got her name from a source of mine that allowed me to do a Nexus case and look up some news stories about her. And it just all started adding up to something that was really incredible. And so there was even a, a connection there, like how she could have known him. And he was very close with Don Staley, who was recruited Alexandria to take his job. So there just a lot of pieces started to fall into place about who she was. So as you mentioned, the accusations against Cosby first came out in 2005. Why then do you think it took 10 years before he was convicted? You know, I explore that in the book too, because it was it blew my mind. Most people don't realize that by the time of the investigation, the DA decided not to charge Cosby in 2005, there were 14 women accusing Cosby because Andrea came forward and then there was news coverage of it. So then this California attorney named Tara Green uh, came forward because she heard an excerpt from the DA at the Times press conference and she became convinced. She could tell. She's like, I know he's not going to charge Cosby. Like she said, Everything he said was DA speak, as she called it, for I'm not going to charge him. And, and she's like, I know this woman's telling the truth because he did the same thing to me 30 years ago. And in fact, that was her initial reaction when she heard it in the news. She was like, 
he's still at it. Like, he's still doing this. She went, she talked to the police, she talked to Andrea's attorneys, and she did uh, an exclusive interview with me. And we ended up putting it on the cover. She wanted her name and photo used, because she said, you know, I, no one's going to believe me if I'm some anonymous source. And she basically came forward to try to show the DA, like, hey, she's telling the truth. And I know this because he did this to me, too. And that, from there, she went on media clips. Like, the Today Show had called me, they got her on of them. Matt Lauer, like, they were her in the interview. It was pretty awful. And then, more and more women started to come forward, but it wasn't enough for the DA. In fact, he just decided abruptly not to charge Cosby. Didn't even tell his own detectives they were still in the middle of their investigation. They that morning had gotten together and run up a list of things to follow up on, and then they saw on the news that night that he had closed the case. For whatever reason, Bruce Moser did not want to touch the case. I write about this in the book because I was very surprised. I had been covering him for years, and he loved the TV cameras. He loved high-profile cases. He's also an excellent prosecutor. I had seen him get a murder conviction off of totally circumstantial evidence. I mean, in one case, they didn't have a murder weapon. They just had a gun in a holster and ready to get a murder conviction. His office had handled that state trooper's case I told you about where he was preying on all these women. And I had noticed the pattern where they always choose victims they think won't be believed should they come forward. And this state cop was, for the most part, was choosing teenage runaways were women sexually assaulted or women who were in the hospital after being beaten up by their boyfriend or husband and were getting protection from abuse orders. So he, he chose vulnerable people on purpose because he would believe them if they said he did this and he was a great big state cop. And, and it's funny, in another drug facilitated sexual assault case, I even quoted Castor saying using, using a drug to um, rape a woman is the same as using a knife or a gun. It's a high-profile case. There's a lot there. There's all these other women who say did the same thing to them. But he wanted nothing to do with it from the very beginning. The press releases he put out at first were very, very aggressive toward Andrea herself. He was telling other reporters that he was going to have me arrested for my stories because I broke some stories about how Andrea had taped phone calls that proved she was telling the truth and that that Cosby had offered her, her money, uh, financial compensation, and she had not accepted that offer. So he thought, I, you know, you're not supposed to. He kept calling these these tapes called illegal wiretaps, and that even listening to them or writing about them is illegal, and she could be arrested for that. Well, years later, when the trial happened, of course, it turns out that they were not illegal wiretaps. They were legal, and he knew that at the time because he had his first assistant to investigate whether or not these were legal wiretaps. The mom, Gianna, had taped a phone call with her and Cosby because she had had a previous phone call with him where he apologized for what he did to her daughter and saying, you know, I'm a sick man. And he had promised to let her know what medication he'd given her daughter because she was really concerned. She's like, how did you know she was going to wake up? You know, how did you know you didn't kill her basically with this? Because that's the thing people don't really think about it. It is very dangerous to drug someone without their knowledge or consent. You know, how do you know they're not allergic to it? I only found out I was allergic to Demerol after I had hand surgery and they gave me, and I broke out in hives all over my body. You know, I didn't know that. Someone had an allergic reaction. And that was Gianna's concern. And she, she had noticed her daughter moved back home after leaving Temple, and she noticed a big change in her. Couldn't figure out what it was. And she was truly worried um, that whatever he had given her had done this to her. And Cosby was also very, very good at, at intimidating the media into not writing about it. And he was, he was threatening to sue my paper. They were sending letters that his attorney, Marty Singer, was calling and threatening to sue us. They also got the other media back to back off with 
what I learned was called trading up. And that was a whole new term, trading up. So what can you tell listeners about what trading up is and what it means in the media? One story to get a better one. It was a very disillusioning experience because I always worked in the newspaper. It was never backed down from anybody. My newspaper backed me completely. They, they did not give into the pressure, and they could have. I mean, but they just were never that type of paper. But you know, the, the national media world is a totally different world. Is what I found out, and they are very prone to backing off a story that's not alienated source or getting a better one. One of the questions that were posed on the podcast was, how could someone who had done so much good do so much evil? This man donated money to charity, was a mentor to many, it seems, and was definitely someone who most households watched when they were kids, like you and me. Do you think part of him wanted to counterbalance all the bad that he did? I mean, it was a good cover, you know, while you're doing because the earliest known victim we know about is um, was from 1965. It's another way of saying there's no way on earth that this person could have possibly done something horrible. I mean, look what they do. They've done all this good. I mean, it is, it is part of his cover. After 2005, did you think any more women would come forward or that you would hear any more about Bill Cosby? The DA decided not to charge Cosby in 2005, and, and Andrea filed her civil suit. They settled in 2006, and, you know, I thought this case was over. By then, I had left my newspaper because it was going through financial problems, and I decided to take a buyout, and then I was freelancing for People Magazine. They had come to me because of my Cosby coverage. So I thought... I thought the case was over, but I, I couldn't put my all, I kept all my notes, all my interviews, and I just put them in a waterproof box and I put them in my basement. I couldn't get rid of them. I was just like, you never know this case could come back. <laughs> I didn't think it would be Andrea's, but I thought, you know, there's already 14 women accusing him. Someone else could come forward again and this, this case could come back. For listeners who don't know, there was a viral video that went around that actually jump-started this whole thing again. What can you tell us about that video? I didn't expect it to be a viral video. Yet social media was the huge difference because Cosby could control media, but he could not control social media. And when Hannibal Burris's video that a Philly Mag reporter took at an Philly appearance where he talked about Bill Cosby raping women and posted it on the site, it went viral. And it just never really stopped from there. It just kept building and building and building. And pretty soon the Daily Mail did a story, Gawker, like. Some of these news organizations, these online news organizations, didn't even exist in 2005. I mean, there was no social media. Facebook was still for just for college students. No Twitter, no Instagram, no anything. And story really could not go viral back then. Um, the closest was my stories were going out on the Nightwitter Wire, which was the chain of newspapers that owned my paper. And that made Cosby's people crazy because they would see it. They, so my story would appear in like the Charlotte Observer and you know these other any other newspaper that got that wire service was also running my stories, and that made them nuts. But social media was something couldn't control and they did try Cosby had like a mean contest and then people but people started responding with memes about him drugging and raping women and so they kind of pulled back down the same day. Do you know of any other journalists or biographers of Cosby's who might have looked back and said wow I wish I really had investigated this a little more? After this story broke again in 2014 a lot of journalists did mea culpa. Um, David Carr from the New York Times and Mark Whitaker, who had just written a bio of Cosby, this 500-page bio of Cosby that had just come out and was climbing the bestseller list in September 2014, um, didn't include one word about the drugging and sexual assault allegations about Cosby from 2005. So he finally admitted he should have. David Carr, you know, called himself out. He called out Kenneth, I can never say his name, Kenneth Coates, who also called himself out and said, I should have included this in the story I did for The Atlantic. And Ronan Farrow himself wrote a mea culpa and said he was with NBC at the time and said the producer told him not to ask 
Cosby's bi bi biographer about the sexual assault allegations. So who didn't? And so I think the very last question is squeeze some in. You wrote, I'm ashamed of that interview. So a lot of journalists did mea culpas um, in 2014. And it was a shame because I write in the book, you know, if the collective force of media had been on this case in 2005 the way they were in 2014, it would have put pressure on the DA to do something. And as it stands, there was only one case that was still within the statute of limitations in 2014, and that was Andrea Constance. But there might have been more back in 2005, you know, those other 13 women that came forward. And none of them actually were looking for that type of justice or, you know, a lawsuit or anything. They simply came forward to support Andrea just to show that she was telling the truth. But still, some of them really did come to want, like, criminal justice justice, but the statute of limitations had long expired. There seemed to be a lot of defense for Cosby pre-verdict. Do you believe he has the same amount of support now as he did then? Yeah, I do, because he still has, like, I think it's 3 million followers on Twitter. He had several hundred thousand on Facebook and Instagram. You know, he's got an appeal before the PA Supreme Court. Um, I watched the arguments in December, and I was kind of shocked at how backward-thinking the, the Supreme Court justices were in Pennsylvania. So um, it doesn't go well for prosecution on that one. Although I will say the remedy, if he wins that appeal, the remedy is the trial. It's not you know, exoneration. So yeah, I, I mean, still like if you read the comments on a lot of it, he still gets a lot of positive comments. The last two months he's been running old clips of Fat Albert and the Cosby kids on his social media and Cosby show excerpts and spokesperson doing it, not him, but it's the Bill Cosby site. And you read that and it's, you know, in America, we just have this hero worship of celebrity and you know I, I guarantee you none of these people have ever met him first of all and so they just worship him and you're we know you're innocent defamation lawsuits were talked about in the book as well as on the podcast for chase and cosby can cosby still continue to sue for defamation yes yeah, so in 2014 um and some of the others so they and of course cosby spoke and then started you know, ripping out every derogatory, every negative piece of information they could find about them. You look at the press and the press would run it just to show that these women were lying. When, of course, like, like Tamara said in our live event we held, you know, sexual assault is the only violent crime where anything you did in your past is held against you. Like if you're a burglary victim, no one says, well, five years ago she bounced a check, so clearly she's lying about this. But with sexual assault, that that's what they do. Well, she sued him for defamation, and then six others soon joined her, and then he countersued them for defamation. And then he has another sexual battery lawsuit. But after he was convicted, his homeowner's insurance was handling those defamation lawsuits, so who knew that there's an umbrella policy you can get that will actually fight, you know, fight for you if you get sued for defamation or slander or something like that. So his homeowner's insurance was funding this whole thing. And after he was convicted, they settled all of those defamation lawsuits. And he was furious. He injured why his folks when he's putting out statements saying, this is outrageous. They didn't ask our permission. He's innocent. And so, so, so the insurance company settled with all of them. It's called umbrella insurance. And you get it as like increased liability. So it actually brings down the cost of your homeowners and your car insurance. The Me Too movement that emerged from the Cosby case has had a powerful undertone, especially for women. Many of us have faced discrimination in the workplace because of gender, race, educational status, and much more. What impact do you think Me Too has had on women post the Cosby conviction? Has it been a positive impact, or do you think there's still more work to be done? There's still more work to be done, because I don't want to get into politics at all, but I would just say I was very 
disappointed to see the same thing happening to the woman who accused Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her as happened to all of the Cosby survivors in 2005. Um, she was trashed. Every bad thing she'd ever done in her life since the assault was dragged out. She had corroboration, but they just, they did not want to hear it because they wanted Trump out. They hated Trump more than, than you know, like Alyssa Milano, who was a good two person and who was always about, and what's the slogan? Women. They did not believe this particular woman because she was, they wanted Trump out. So there's a lot of work to be done. And a lot of, like, I was really sad to see how bad the journalism was there, too. Because one thing that I did that I, I knew in 2005, I don't know a lot about sexual assault or enough anyway. So I would go to sexual assault experts and quote them in my stories and say, hey, Marjorie, you know, I think she had a DUI or some, some things came out about her that causes people to like, this. is this relevant to whether or not this sexual assault that she says happened in 1969 or 1970? And they said, no, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, I mean, my God, a, a, a prostitute can be raped. But the defense attorneys, the rape shield laws prevent these defense attorneys from doing this in court. So instead they leave stuff like this to the media and the media runs with it. What was the best part of writing this story and what was the worst part of writing this story for you, would you say? Oh boy, the, the best part was I feel really good about standing up and not giving into the cosmic pressure or any of it or the media. Like I, I, there was a negative story about me playing it in the media in 2005 and Philly Weekly. I feel very proud that, you know, I stuck with it, that and one of the reasons I got back on it in 2014, A, it was my story, but B, I was like, now all of the media is on the anti-Cosby bandwagon. They could just as easily jump off. I saw it happen in 2005. And I started, saw it starting to happen at the second trial. It was pretty interesting from the national media. So I just feel the best part has been always just sticking up and reporting in these women. The toughest part has been, you know, a lot of the backlash, but... I wouldn't change his thing. I know who's telling the truth. What is something that you hope readers of the book or listeners of the podcast will take away from Chasing Cosby? I hope they will take away a greater understanding. And I hope they read the book too, because the book has a lot in it. The podcast podcast is great because they get to hear the women themselves tell their stories, which I think is so powerful. But I hope that they, the next time, because we all know someone who's been sexually assaulted, that the next time we... We read about something, we hear something, and we know about something of a woman that she's sexually assaulted. That instead of thinking, "Oh, she's lying," they think, "Okay, you know, it's because this is the norm." Like the, the sexual assault expert testified first in the second trial for Cosby, and she laid out all of the rapeness, and she was fantastic. Dr. Ziv, she later testified at Harvey Weinstein's trial, and she was a fantastic expert witness because she was just like, you know, most most sexual assault victims do not ever go to the police. Most sexual assault victims, when they do go to the police, it's delayed reporting. They don't go immediately. Most sexual assault victims don't fight back. You know, most sexual assault, or many sexual assault victims don't stay in contact with someone after they've done this. Good. And like, they went through all of these things to help give the jury a greater understanding of sexual assault victim behavior. Because it is until you, you know, immerse yourself in it it's hard to understand and that there is a level of shame attached to sexual assault as a crime when you're a victim that there isn't with any other crime and there are so many reasons that victims don't come forward and then when they do and look what happens to them look at Terry every bad thing she's ever done in her life is all over the media Tamara Green every bit mistake she'd ever made made was all over the media I mean she went into a deep depression and almost became suicidal after 2005 because of the attacks on her and she was a lawyer. She was a mom. She's like, she, and I remember talking to her before she did the story. I'm like, are you sure 
you're prepared for what's going to come next with your name and your photo being used. She said, oh yeah, she said, I'm not a good person, but I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I'm a mom, you know, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a reputable person. People will see that. I'm, have I had a personal life? No. But she was ripped to shreds um, in the media because the Kazi's people were ready, like leaking all this material about her. And I had gone to them for comments before the story ran. Of course, they could have given me some of that information then. One of it was just, it was basically, one of them was just a bar complaint that had been filed against her, which she ended up resolving. But instead, they chose it, right, you know, to not tell me about it, and I didn't uncover it, and leak it to the media to try to discredit me and her at the same time. Do you feel that the women he did harm finally received some form of justice once the conviction came through? I do feel that, but, you know, there's always that that's going to happen with this appeal. You know, the whole reason Andrea finally came forward, she'd been having nightmares all year about what happened to her in these nightmares. Women were being assaulted, sexually assaulted in front of her, and it was her fault because she hadn't gone to the police. And she woke up crying from one of those nightmares in January 2005 and called her mom and said, her mom was on the way to work, and she blurted out, Mom, Bill Cosby drugged people sexually assaulted. And that's what started this whole thing. And that's what made her stick with it. She told that she went to the police and she told them. And that was her whole rationale. And that's always her fear that if he gets out, he'll do this again. Gianna believed her daughter. And, you know, sexual assault experts will tell you that most sexual assault victims will, when they decide to, when they're thinking about going to the police or reporting it, they first disclose to someone they trust, someone close to them, and, and they see how that goes. And if that doesn't go well, then it doesn't give them the courage necessarily to go to the police. In fact, there was one other woman who testified at the first trial, and her mom testified too, and she tried to, her mom broke into tears on the stand because Kelly tried to tell her what Cosby had done to her. But all I'm just saying that, you know, this is a guy who everyone believed was someone else, so it made it even harder for families to believe this. And he groomed the families too, let me add. Like, he... He groomed their families, and that gave them an extra level of you know, protection because uh, Andrea's mom and sister had gone to, as Cosby's guest, had gone to a concert of his in, in Canada where they lived when he was there. Because Andrea met him for John the Temple, and he became her mentor, which she thought was her mentor and grandfather figure for like 14 months. And he got her sister and mom tickets, and they went backstage, and they met him, got their pictures taken with him. And this was that sort of extra insulation, too, for him, you know, protecting himself with these, with these family members. You know, he groomed to them too as well as her as well as the victim so you know that's why <laughs> are they going to believe her oh my god you never do that so it's very diabolical are you in the process of writing another book now? And if so, will it also be based on true crime? So the second book is actually coming out in June. Co-authored it with the subjects of the book. It's called Victim F and it is true crime. It's another horrific case. Um, a woman in California, Denise Huskins, who was kidnapped from her boyfriend's bed and held for two days and raped and they videoed it and then released. And then the police accused her of making the whole, her and her boyfriend of making the whole thing up and called like the real life gone girl. That's a whole hope very powerful story and they are two incredible people and what they went through I, I can't even imagine going through I mean her boyfriend was questioned for 17 hours with the police trying to convince him that he murdered her they didn't believe him they didn't believe him his brother was an FBI agent and he called his brother and his brother came over and then you know he told him to call the police I mean he he was a physical therapist in town his girlfriend was a physical therapist. Like, these were disreputable people in the police. They didn't believe him. And then when it, they got a proof of life call about that, he's still being alive, and they changed it. Oh, it's like a little phone bill. She just made this whole thing up. And they ended up super the police and for defamation, and then they won to $5 million. But they really are very committed to making people aware of, like, all 
confession issue. I mean, he easily could have been, if he wasn't who he was, I mean, what chance does the average person stand against these type of tactics when, you know, someone like Aaron is very educated and, and you know, savvy and kind of knows his brother's an FBI agent. And like, you know, they almost were trying their best to convince him that he did it. And there were moments that he writes about it when there he's like, I don't know anymore. You know, would my friends stand by me? Like they put, it was, it's very, very powerful and eye-opening. So that comes out June 8th. And Thank you, Miss Nikki Wisensee Egan, for being with us this week as our Writer of the Week last week and as our podcast guest this week. Her book, Chasing Cosby, is available on Amazon.com and pretty much everywhere books are sold. You can also listen to the Chasing Cosby podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Follow Nikki on Twitter at N. Egan or at Chasing Cosby. You can also follow her at Nikki Wisensee Egan on Instagram and look for Chasing Cosby on Facebook as well. Be sure to drop by the blog if you haven't already to also collect all of her links from last week's Writer of the Week article. And again, if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. Contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline today at 1-800-656-4673. Stick around for more of the Writing Wall podcast right after this. Valentine's Day is quickly approaching. It will be upon us very, very soon. That being said, here is some gift-giving ideas for your riderly sweetheart or sweethearts. Nothing says my heart is booked quite like a book locket, a necklace of a book with your girlfriend or your wife or your significant other's initial on it. Pretty cool, right? SD sells these. Go out, have a look. It's a great idea. We all know that some writers, especially me, I love the smell of old books. So Old Books Scented Soy Candle on SD sells these romantic and relaxing smelling candles. If you really want to get fancy or turned up, they say on Valentine's Day, they also sell candles called the Trashy Romance Novel and feature candles with scents crafted to match fictional characters and locations like the Great Gatsby Mansion or Harry Potter's Tea Party. Again, give them a look. They're on SD or Amazon and you can pick out the perfect candle for your significant other and book lover writer. Laptop bed tray. Yes, please. Anywhere I can set my tablet, my laptop, that'd be great. I can't write in bed anymore like I used to, but it's definitely something that I would love to have had back in the day. It features an adjustable top to customize the best writing angle and it is available in walnut or natural finish. The great news is you can find these on amazon.com for $49.95. It's not Valentine's Day until someone gets chocolates. That's right. These chocolates are on SD. They're literary book chocolates. And I so agree with this statement. There are just some Valentine's Day traditions that should not be ignored. Amen to that. And these come gift wrapped. And again, you can get them on SD. They're handmade by Chalk on Chalk. You really want to do something from your heart to make your guy or gal think that you're really thinking about them this Valentine's Day and you know they're a writer and they love all things writerly, well, do-it-yourself gift baskets. Get you a tote bag or a basket, add in some pins, add in some notebooks, add in some really nice teas, 
if they like tea or coffee, a winter mug perhaps, or a writerly mug. You can pick those up anywhere on Amazon. Don't be afraid to throw in some additional stuff like a fun game, poetry books, bookmarks, or sticky notes in some cases because I love sticky notes. I use them as bookmarks too. Pretty much anything you can imagine that your significant other and writerly lover could use, add it to the basket or the tote. Shameless plug here, you can actually pick up a Dividing Ridge tote bag on our Teespring store. Visit us at https semicolon forward slash forward slash dividing ridge books dot webador.com. Here's a fun one. Did you know that they have writerly socks on Amazon? You can look them up. Socksmith. True. They're $8. Come in all different things. Jane Austen is one. So is Band Book Socks and Shakespeare Socks. I love the Story Arts Fingerless Gloves from like the Great Gatsby, the Raven, Still I Rise, and the Night Circus. I love that idea. So you can go to Story Arts Fingerless Gloves on Google and they'll come up. Doesn't hurt to be styling when you're noveling. Just saying. Online course for improving the writing. Do not do this. Do not do this. Why is this a suggestion? Like you're saying, babe, I love that you write, but you know, you're just not that good. Here's your online course. Oh my god. Horrible. Okay, bad gift idea. Do not do that. Novel teas. Ooh. Each bag comes with 25 individually wrapped tea bags containing English breakfast tea and a quote about books from a variety of authors from novel teas. Apparently there's literary perfumes too. Dead writer's perfume. You can get it in Pemberley, a Jane Austen inspired perfume or more. We hope that maybe we have inspired you to go out and buy, look, or maybe even put together your own writerly valentine for that special someone in your life. And don't forget to check us out on Wednesday, February the 17th, because author, playwright, and podcaster Charlie Lovett will be taking over our writing corner. When we come back, we're going to do the one thing everyone's been looking forward to, shameless self-promo Saturday shout-outs, so stick around. I'm going to keep Shameless Self Promo Saturday a little short this time. This time I'm going to be giving out some thank yous. So thank you to author Jack Oswald for being our guest on the podcast a few weeks back. Jack, your book was absolutely amazing. I'm telling everyone now, if you like Tom Clancy, Jack Carr, this guy, this guy's next. Give Jack Oswald's book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, a look. Then there's BD West. Thank you so much for that wonderful gift package. I won the contest, was second in place. I hope the first place winner loves theirs as much as I do mine. My winner of Wolf's Mug is on my desk, sitting here looking at me with tea inside. So thank you so much, BD. Give her book, Winner of Wolves, a look, and her sequel, Winner of Wolves, the Seven, a look as well. You can follow BD on Twitter and Instagram too, and on Facebook. Next up, just want to give a big thank you to Susan McNabb, aka Suki McMinn, who made it onto our podcast last month. If you have not had time to check out this fashionista's 
turned authors podcast interview then head on over go back and take a look for it it's called strike a pose or is that prose also want to thank alexandra kilworth this week for being our writer of the week this young lady is fabulous she's written a number of books writing another one currently all the best to you alexandria as you continue in your writing we hope that you have enjoyed being our writer of the week as much as we've enjoyed having you and featuring all of your books our next writer of the week is charlie lovett charlie lovett was also our hooked on books guest author and you'll be right here on the writing wall podcast writing corner wednesday february the 17th at 6 p.m eastern standard time our next hooked on books is march 11th at 6 p.m eastern standard time on zoom we'll be hosting author george ann eubanks the author of the literary trail series from unc press these three guidebooks provide driving tours across north carolina describing the settings for the state's many writers of fiction nonfiction, poetry and plays have found inspiration and material for their work you can become a member of allegheny writers to participate and partake in some other great member benefits just visit www.alleghenywriters.com forward slash membership for more details thank you to all of our listeners and followers for being with us this shameless self promo saturday we'll be back with a brand new full episode of the writing wall podcast february the 27th at 6 p.m eastern standard time and don't miss charlie lovett's writing corner wednesday on february 17th because we all have a story to share we want to hear yours what is your story Anytime I purchase a book, I always review, and if I really enjoy reading your work, rest assured, it may be shared here on this podcast with my listeners and followers. Of course, I will do so with permission from the author or authors first. Please like, follow, and share this information with other writers, and if you ever need a writer's lift, visit me on social media. Thank you all again for being here for this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and learning more about the stories you weave.